Isaiah 60, verses 1 through 9, as we think about Jesus' words, you are the salt of the earth, you are the light of the world, we'll give some consideration as to how we can be light, which comes only through God's work in us. And we see the end of our uh, passage from Isaiah 60 this morning. He is the one, the Holy One of Israel, has endowed us with splendor. This light uh, comes from God, who is the light. Isaiah 60, here now God's holy word. Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord rises upon you. See, darkness covers the earth, and thick darkness is over the peoples. But the Lord rises upon you, and his glory appears over you. Nations will come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your dawn. Lift up your eyes and look about you. All assemble and come to you. Your sons come from afar, and your daughters are carried on the arm. Then you will look and be radiant. Your heart will throb and swell with joy. The wealth and the seas will be brought to you. To you the riches of the nations will come. Herds of camels will cover your land, young camels of Midian and Ephah, and all from Sheba will come, bearing gold and incense and proclaiming the praise of the Lord. All Kedar's flocks will be gathered to you. The rams of Nebaioth will serve you. They will be accepted as offerings on my altar, and I will adorn my glorious temple. Who are these that fly along like clouds, like doves to their nests? Surely the islands look to me. In the lead are the ships of Tarshish, bringing your sons from afar with their silver and gold to the honor of the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, for he has endowed you with splendor. Amen. And if you would go forward to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew 5. Considering... Verses 13 through 16, we'll start reading at verse 11 of Matthew 5. Matthew 5, we'll read 11 through 16, giving attention to verses 13 through 16. Jesus says this. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled by men. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand. And it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before men, that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. We are so blessed to have a a beautiful place, a beautiful sanctuary to come and to worship. And a place like this reminds us of the the wonder of God. It reminds us of the beauty of the gospel of Christ. It reminds us what we were made for. There's kind of a an upward orientation to to what all that goes on inside of a of a beautiful sanctuary such as this. There are many churches in uh, throughout our country, 
uh, more, more on the East Coast, but throughout our country and throughout the world that are much older than ours, uh, but ours bears the mark of age as well, which is a good thing. It's a good thing. But this presents some unique challenges as uh, members of the Building and Grounds Committee of our church are especially aware of. Buildings that are left untouched will go into disrepair. And no matter what you do, no matter how on top of things you are, maintenance projects and expensive maintenance projects will come up. That is because the material that is used to build, any kind of building, material that is used to build is given to wear, to decay, to lose its original constitution. Uh, So how do you combat that? Well, you have to Uh, Be aware of the kinds of problems that will arise. And if you have uh, a church, a a church building that is a little bit older, kind of like ours, what is the best medicine for it? Well, a good, caring, loving, generous congregation that you set in the middle of that building goes a long way towards preserving it as best you can. The fallen world is also given to decay, to becoming rotten, And similarly, it is God's people set in the middle of the world who by God's grace are called to have a similar preserving effect. We are to have a preserving effect in a dark and decaying world. So let's think about uh, these things together. First, uh, the usefulness of salt or useful salt. Second, uh, being united to the light of life. And third, uncovered lights living in the world. So first, useful salt, or the usefulness of salt. This is a bit of a a turn to a new section in the Sermon on the Mount. The the Beatitudes have set forth the particular character of a Christian, what a Christian is from the inside out. We are to be humble, meek, repentant, trusting, steadfast, loving, and peacemaking people. And all of those things It all begins in the heart. Jesus has been speaking of this is who we are from the inside out. And then uh, he shifts right towards the end of the the Beatitudes, speaking of things generally, blessed are the pure in heart. And then he says, blessed are you when you undergo persecution. So so he shifts there to the second person. And that continues uh, in today's passage as well. So the end of the Beatitudes creates a, a bridge to this where we begin to apply the kinds of things we've already learned, if a Christian is such a way in character, then how will that be applied in life? How will it look in life? What kinds of things will they experience? Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth. This is a metaphor where Jesus is saying very simply, what salt does to other things, what it is used to do, that is to be the kind of effect that you are to have in the world. So how are we to understand this? Because we understand that Jesus here is not only speaking to his followers who are listening to him there, but he speaks to us through his word. And there are perhaps, uh, this is perhaps one of the places that is most clearly giving to God's people, giving to followers of Jesus definition to how we are to think about how to live in the world, to be salt and light. So it's important that we understand some of what's going on here. In that time, salt had really two main functions, both of which are different to the primary use of salt today. 
The primary use of salt today is really for seasoning, which was not unheard of then, but it was not one of those first two primary functions. The, the first primary function was uh, to purify things, which is the most attested use in Scripture. And uh, that is connected in the Old Testament to the Old Covenant worship. So, for instance, in Leviticus chapter 2, you shall season all your grain offerings with salt. You shall not let the salt of the covenant with your God be missing from your grain offering. With all your offerings, you shall offer salt. It was used to purify and connected there to the old covenant temple and tabernacle worship because of the emphasis on God's holiness and these ceremonies and rites which reminded the people of Israel of their own impurity. And if they wanted to commune with God, the kind of purity that they were to strive for, and to trust God to provide for them through their worship. So salt was used to purify things. The second primary use of salt that time was of preservation. That's, of course, in some ways connected to purification in that salt, when it's being used to preserve something to make its life longer, it's doing away or at least combating the decadence or the decadent elements. But When salt was applied to, say, meat in an age without refrigeration, what was being pursued was a longer life of the meat to preserve it. And that more directly captures what Jesus is calling his people to do and to be. As God's people, he makes us who we are and he places us where he does so that in accordance with our character and virtue an action, we might have an effect of preservation in this world where sin would bring everything to decay. It's a bit of a central principle there. God, as God's people, he makes us who we are and places us where he does so that because of our character, virtue, and action, we have an effect of preservation in this world where sin would otherwise bring everything towards decay. This more accurately captures the way Jesus is using this metaphor of salt because it more accurately describes the way that the world is going to continue until the end of the age. The church, the kingdom of God, will grow and advance by the gospel of Christ, but sin and evil will also exist alongside of it. There really is no golden age that we're working towards where we will be free from sin, where we will be free from the putrefying and the decadent decadent effects of sin. Those two will exist side by side until the end of the age. But God's people are called peculiarly and particularly to be salt and to have this preserving effect in this world, to combat the decaying effects of sin. But that highlights something about this metaphor of salt and that it is actually speaking not as a positive quality but as a negative quality. Stopping decay and stopping putrefying is an objectively good thing but decaying is what the meat would do if you didn't put salt on it. In some sense you could say it's what the meat wants to do because of uh, what is in it and on it. Salt, in other words, is a foreign agent. It reverses the natural process. Sometimes you will hear the phrase, oh, they're salt of the earth kind of, of people. And sometimes that can be used correctly, but oftentimes you hear it used like the kind of people that 
everybody would always love to be around. The kind of people that will lend a proper helping hand at any moment, right? The, so there's a flat tire, uh, someone's got a flat tire on the road, they pull over and this person helps them. Salt of the earth kind of people. That, that is proper to say, and it's a good thing to live that way, to always want to help. But the metaphor of Jesus here most directly works when we're thinking about things in a moral way. And the moral character of the followers of Christ combat the effects of sin and the process of sin in this world. And that means that oftentimes they're going to be people who are not all that comfortable to be around if someone does not know Christ. If someone does not live in accordance with God and his word. It is a foreign agent that reverses the natural process. Keep in mind that the context of the sermon uh, that Jesus is preaching, the Sermon on the Mount, is basically suffering and persecution. Christ's followers set in this world, and there is something that's peculiar about them that sets them at odds with the people who are defined by this world. So you would think that those who are the meat of the world, if you will, will not always have warm feelings when the salt of the earth people come into contact with it. Salt is rubbed on meat for preservation. There's a reaction. There's a, uh, there's an un, uh, a lack of uh, comfort to it. So how are we to make sense of this metaphor? Jesus employs it, and it's important for us to think about it. How are we to think about being the salt of the earth? As we said, it's a moral calling. It reminds us that though... Many take a view of humanity that is ever upward, that humanity is always going to be on this process of getting better and better. It's really a kind of a Darwinistic idea. Rather, because of the fall, because of sin, mankind's natural direction is downward spiritually and morally. The natural direction of mankind is downward, both spiritually and morally. That's not to say that humanity does not have positive developments. Obviously, industry and culture experience much by God's common grace, and much of that is often fueled uh, by Christians living in the world. But if you were to take something like Genesis, you really have that story repeated twice. The downward moral spiral of humanity, Genesis 3 through 6 from the fall, we're already to the point where God wants to purify the world because of the evil that is throughout it. And then after the flood, we're focusing on Abraham and his family, and yet you can still see how sin is proliferating throughout all of the world. The, the direction, the natural direction of mankind is downward both spiritually and morally. Where there are people, sin will abound and will increase. And it will always be increasing and ever more increasing if not for this one factor that God has laid out in his word, which is his work, which he does through his people who are the salt of the earth. How do we think about being the salt of the earth? Well, we spoke last week about thinking about the Bible in terms of great calls. So the upward call of God, that's our ultimate purpose. The call to repentance and faith is how we're reconciled to God. The third call is the great commandment. When Jesus is saying, you are the salt of the earth, really what he is doing is reminding us of the centrality of living as those reconciled to him in accordance with the great commandment to love God and to love 
our neighbor. Jesus is essentially saying, everywhere you go and everything you do, every thought, word, reaction, interaction is to be done in conformity with the high moral calling of my people. It is to be done in conformity with my word. It is to be done in conformity with my law and my commandments. Whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of Jesus Christ, giving thanks to God the Father through him. If we live as people who are defined by the Beatitudes, if we have undergone that heart change that Jesus describes at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, we will live as salt of the earth. It's as if Jesus were to say, if you live as I command you, all of you, just as salt begins in a bowl, thousands of tiny grains all together, but then becomes extremely spread out over the surface of meat, if you live as I call you, you will be salt. This is what's important for us to understand. You don't have to be a sociologist. You don't have to understand all kinds of ins and outs of cultural dynamics. You don't have to be an expert on what is cool and in and what are the fads of the current cultural trends. You don't have to have any of those things in order to be salt. No. The natural way of things in this world, the way the world is, as fallen and filled with darkness, and filled with decay. The way that the world is, is that you cannot set a righteous man or a righteous woman in the middle of this world without them being salt. Our greatest call is to serve God with all of our hearts and to serve others lovingly in his name. Being that makes you someone who is salt. You don't have to understand, as I said, all of the ins and outs. You don't need a PhD or you don't have to know everything about a culture. God says, live as I call you to live and I'm going to set you in the middle of this world and because of who I have made you to be, you will be salt. It's an assuring thing. It's a, it's a comforting thing. What we can say will always be imprecise in a setting like this because we all go to various callings and vocations throughout the week. All of our lives are so different. But the calling is the same. Be imitators of God as beloved children. People often think, how, you know, how are we to influence society? But the greatest influences that societies have ever experienced in a positive way are those that arose organically because Christian people living like Christians. Martin Lloyd-Jones says, Christians by being Christian influence society almost automatically. As you think about this very simply, people know that you are a Christian. People know that you bear the name of Jesus Christ wherever you go, perhaps in your workplace. Your presence may change the way that people talk. When you are around, all of a sudden the way people talk changes, whether it's the words they use or the manner in which they are speaking about others. That is an example of the effects of sin being slowed down, being combated by the presence of God's people in the world. It can be as simple as that. It can be as perhaps to earthly eyes as big and important as a 
professed Christian and faithful Christian elected to the United States Congress and simply applying his or her faith at various points to these issues, trying to work within a system that often seems very broken and hopeless, but trying to apply biblical and Christian principles and speaking truth where opportunity is given. It can be very simple. It can be more complex. God places us in various uh, situations and callings and he says if you live as I call you to live if you live in in conformity with my commandments if you live in conformity with my law you will be salt this is why we remind ourselves of how God has called us to live through reading the ten commandments through reading new testament readings of the law because we remind ourselves what God has called us to be Jesus also gives us a warning if salt loses its saltiness then it is worthless. That word for losing its saltiness really means to become foolish or to make foolish. That's an interesting word to use in this instance. But it highlights what a fool actually is. What is a a fool? A fool is someone who lives in an unfitting way. A fool is someone who lives against his purpose. Proverbs 15.5, a fool despises his father's instruction, but whoever heeds reproof is prudent. It's unfitting for someone to disregard the instruction of a wise father. There's something that's unfitting, repugnant, about the son of a wise father who lives rejecting his father's commands. So also to be unsalty as a Christian is to live against our calling. It's to live against our purpose. Who God has made us to be are righteous people seeking God's righteousness and faithfulness to him in the midst of a world that does not know him. But when a Christian lives without personal holiness, when a Christian lives with total disregard to God's word, when a Christian, uh, a professed Christian lives in ways that go completely against God's word, it is unfitting, it is repugnant. Useless in regards to what God has called him to be and do. Jesus issues this warning as a way of reminding us that God will not be mocked in these kinds of things, in, in, in these kinds of ways. He gives his son to us in order to make us his people. And those who are his people show that reality forth. It, it exudes forth from the Beatitudes to a heart change, to a life lived. But that life lived comes from God first and foremost. Jesus says you are the salt of the earth, you are the light of the world and that seems to put a lot of hope on the shoulders of of his people. It's almost as if he's saying you are the only hope that the world has which if that's true then we're in a whole lot of trouble. I remember I was in college and doing some odd jobs and uh, one time I was hired to move high-end model dollhouses. Maybe I've shared this story with you all before. Uh, But I ended up riding in the back of the moving truck because uh, I and the guy that I was working with, we were worried that these dollhouses were going to topple over. These were very expensive uh, pieces of of art. And so I rode in the back of the moving truck the whole way, trying to make sure that nothing was going to topple over uh, when we went over a turn or something. And when we got to the point of destination, the owners were waiting towards the back of the truck. They didn't know I was in there. And so we opened the door and I'm in the back of the truck 
and uh, the, the husband of, the, of this couple, he says, he looks at me just with shocked eyes, and he says, you have restored my faith in humanity. And it's like, as I reflect on that, years later I'm thinking, I hope, well I know he was joking, but if the hopes for humanity, for his hopes of humanity ride on me, then he's in a lot of trouble. And if the hope of the world rides on the church as the church, or God's people as God's people in and of themselves, then the world is in trouble. But it's not because of us or what's inside of us. It is because of God and his work in us by his grace. Jesus says, you are the light of the world, but he also says in John 8, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So you put the biblical pieces together. Jesus calls us the light of the world, but calls himself the light of the world, and that his followers have the light of life. You put it together this way. Jesus is saying, if you are united to me, if you know me, if you receive my light, then you too will have a light that can shine. But this, of course, means that it's not our own light. And of course it's not. Jehovah is my light. We live as light in the Lord, for he has made us to be that. Arise, O sleeper, awake from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. This highlights the importance of the new birth in the life of the Christian. John 3, 19, Jesus says, this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. To be light is to shine forth what God has given to us. To be light is to shine forth who God is and what he has made us to be. How do we come to the light, as John 3 says? We must be born again. We must be born of the Spirit. We must be changed by the grace of God and by the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so we come to these things humbly because we see that it is only the work of God in the gospel that can make us the light of the world. If you have faith in Christ, thank God and praise him because he has saved you. If you do not have faith in Christ, look to him. Trust in him. Do what is true. Come to the light that all may clearly see what God will do in you. But it highlights how utterly different God conceives of his people in relation to the world. The world is darkness and you are light. J.C. Ryle says this, Surely if words mean anything, we are meant to learn from these two figures that there must be something marked, distinct, and peculiar about our character if we are true Christians. It will never do to idle through life, thinking and living like others, if we mean to be owned by Christ and his people. Have we grace? Then it must be seen. Have we the spirit? Then there must be fruit. Have we any saving religion? Then there must be a difference of habits, tastes, and turn of mind between us and those who think only of the world. It is perfectly clear that true Christianity is something more than being baptized and going to church. Salt and light evidently imply peculiarity both of heart and life, of faith and practice. We must dare to be singular and unlike the world if we mean to be saved. What does it mean to be light? Well, it means that we are different in the way that we think, 
Sometimes we call that a worldview. Christians are to think differently. How are they to think differently? Well, it's a fundamental difference if you reason through things with the conviction that in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. This is his world and he created it and he spoke it into being by the word of his power. That changes the way that you think. It changes the way you think if you believe that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. It changes the way you think if in everything you are aiming to please Christ. It changes the way you think and the way you reason if God's glory is the highest good. A Christian thinks and reasons through things differently. Of course, a Christian acts differently. A Christian is regulated by God's word. The life of a Christian exposes the evil around him or her. We read it in Ephesians 5. At one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light and try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. As much as uh, those who, are, who know not Christ, as much as they might say that they seek to be unselfish, it is true that it is only in Christ that we truly begin to understand what it means to not live for ourselves. We don't live for ourselves. We live for God and we live for others. We live in ways that show that the next life is best. So we are light because of what God has done in us that changes the way we think, that changes the way that we live. You must be united to the light of life by faith. And then, of course, Jesus calls us to be uncovered light living in the world. When you light a lamp, you do not cover it up. Light that is on is to be used and it is to light up a house or a room. So the principle there is very simple. If we are the light of the world, we are not to be hidden. Dietrich Bonhoeffer has an interesting quote. He says this, Flight into the invisible is a denial of the call. A community of Jesus which seeks to hide itself has ceased to follow him. Jesus is very simply affirming that his call to his people, the church, is that we are to be set in the midst of the world. We are not to seek withdrawal from the world but rather we are to seek to live faithfully in the midst of the world. That's not to say that Christians cannot be mindful of the communities that they involve themselves with. Uh, and it's also not to say that there can never be groups of Christians that seek to organize new communities in thoughtful ways that reflect uh, the goodness and the character of the Christian and of God. That's becoming more popular now as our world becomes more bifurcated. That's not what it's saying at all. What it does say is that our general attitude as God's people is that we are not to seek to be invisible and withdrawn and unnoticed by the world. Jesus says, your good works are to be put on display. Be put on display for a few reasons. Matthew 5, 16, let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. So the light that we bear is the good deeds that God brings about in us by his grace. There are really three different outcomes from verse 16 that I'll highlight really quickly as we close. What does it mean that people see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven? So you, we all are to seek good works, to be zealous for them by God's grace, oriented to his glory, by faith in Christ. We are to seek, to show forth our good deeds. People will see them and they will praise your Father in heaven. What does that mean? Three possibilities, at least, that I believe are here. 
in this verse. First is this. People see your good works. They see your manner of life. They respect you and respect the way you live your life. And they give reverence to the God whom you serve. They may hold back from their own conversion or trusting in Christ, but they see the way that you live your life. They respect you. And because of that, they give reverence to the God whom you serve. Our lives can be striking and impressive to the world, even if people aren't convinced by our life to the point of becoming a follower of Christ themselves. Secondly, this. People see your good works and are so moved by them that they become believers. Of course, our catechism speaks of this. We do good so that by our godly living, our neighbors may be won over to Christ. The first possibility, people see your good works, they respect you, they don't become a believer, but they give reverence to God. They say, wow, that, that faith, your faith is really striking to me. Secondly, people are so moved by your manner of life that they themselves become believers, which our catechism talks about. And then third is this, people see your good works, continue to slander you, and persecute you, continue to turn their backs on God, and their condemnation will be all the more clear on Judgment Day. First Peter 2, uh, Peter picks up on this passage and says this, Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Now in all three of those, God blesses you, he grows you by his grace. He gets the glory and the promise of what you inherit increases in eternity. Even in suffering, even when we are slandered and persecuted for the name of Christ that we bear and the ways that we seek to honor him, we receive the opportunity to be like our Savior who entrusted himself completely to his Father and he waited for his vindication from heaven. So in all of those possibilities, God is honored. You grow by faith and grace. You honor God. You, you bring honor to your maker and your creator and your savior. He blesses you and he gets the glory. So no matter what the response is, our calling is clear in being salt and light. To seek good deeds in the midst of a world that is dark and decaying. To be the people that God has called us to be, to have this effect of preserving and combating the process of sin and darkness and decay. May God, by his power, give us the grace uh, to be who he has called us to be. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you and praise you for your word and for your gospel. Thank you for Christ and the opportunity he gives us uh, to live for him each day. Uh, that he has set us free from sin and death, and freed us uh, to serve you in him and by the power of the Spirit, we pray. Amen.